theyeshiva.net. I want to explore today a puzzling story. It's the tale known as the five daughters of Tzlavchad, Benos Tzlavchad, recorded in the portion of Pinchas. Let's remember, let's recall the episode. Tzlavchad was a Jewish man of the generation of Jews, of Hebrews, born in Egyptian slavery. Liberated during Yitzhak Mitzrayim, during the Exodus, and granted the land of Canaan as Israel's eternal heritage. That generation, as we know, did not merit to take possession of the land themselves. They passed away in the desert. But when their children crossed the Jordan River to conquer it, they did so as their father's ears. That's where the Torah states in Pinchas. Each family received its share in the land in accordance with its appointment among the 600,000 members of the generation of the Exodus. Tzlavchad had five daughters, but he had no sons. The names of these daughters were Machla, Noya, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza. That's Machla, Noah, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza. The laws of inheritance, as they were initially given in the Torah, which recognized only male ears, in which sons inherit their fathers, and they are responsible to fully support the widow and the daughters as long as they did not marry. In this case, though, there were no sons to inherit Slavchat's portion in the land. So the daughters refused to reconcile themselves to this situation, and they approach Moshe with their petition. The way the Torah puts it, and I'm going to quote, is Vatikravna bnos Slavchad ben Chefer ben Gilad ben Machir ben Menashe, the daughters of Slavchad, who was the son of Mach, uh, who was the son of Chefer, who was a son of Gilad, who was a son of Machir, who was a son of Menashe, who of course was a son of Yosef. And the five daughters' name is Machlanoya Chago Milka Tirza, and they come and they stand in front of Moshe. And they stand in front of Elazar, who is the high priest now. He succeeded his father Aaron. And they stand in front of the leaders of the community. This is near the tabernacle at the entrance to the sanctuary. And they tell Moshe and the other leaders of Israel, Avinu Mezba Midbar. Our father died in the Midbar and he was not. Avinu Mezba Midbar. He died in the desert and he was not part of the mutiny against God joining Kairach's revolt. He was not part of that gang. He was not part of the group who gathered and enticed a revolution, a revolt against God together with Kairach. He died because of his own sins and he never had sons. And the daughters of Tzlavchad now after introducing the story they had a father Tzlavchot, he died, he had no sons. Now they come to the punchline. Does it make sense? Why would it be right that our father's name should be deleted from his whole family just because he has no sons? Give us the inheritance. Among the brothers of our father, just like the brothers of our father, their children or they are inheriting the land. Why should our father's name be deleted and gone just because there's no sons? Again, according to the original laws of inheritance, the sons 
inherited the property of the father, and they were responsible to support their mother, the widow, if the father died, and any sisters until the sister would marry, and then, of course, her husband would take full responsibility. But now there's no son, so if there's no son, what happens? There's no inheritance. And the verse says, Vayakriv Moshe's Mishpatam Lifnei Hashem. Moshe brought their question, their judgment, their situation, their case before God. And Hashem tells Moshe, they're right. Cain B'nai Slavchad, the daughters of Slavchad, utter just words. Give them the inheritance that their father would have received among the brothers of their father, just as if Slavchad would have had sons, only sons, the sons would inherit it. They should inherit everything that would go to their father. And that's when God introduces new details, a new clause into the laws of inheritance that in a case where there's no son, the inheritance goes over to the daughter. That's the story that is recorded in Parshas Pinchas. What I want to address is one very fascinating detail. And that is, it seems like, that as soon as Moshe heard the question that was posed to him by the daughters of Tzlavchad, he immediately, without skipping a beat, he declared, this question belongs to God. To quote the Pasuk, right after they come complaining to Moshe, this does not make sense. Give us the inheritance. The next words are, Vayakriv Moshe Moshe takes the case, and he brings it to God. That's the expression that the Torah uses. It's a very interesting expression. None of his own deliberation is employed here. He doesn't say, interesting, let me think about it, let me reflect, immediately brings it over to God. Now, let's analyze this for a moment. This episode occurred at the end of a 40-year journey in the wilderness, in the Sinai wilderness, during which Moshe Rabbeinu amassed great knowledge in the laws of Torah, including the system of formulas of how to tackle any new question that may arise in the future. Because God did not present Moshe every single law about every single question that will ever arise in history. There are the 613 mitzvahs and their details. But then there is also the formula of how to use the constitution of Torah law to deal with any new situation that arises throughout history. Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of 40 years has been learning with God for 40 years. Already immediately by Sinai he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights mastering the Torah. But now, after 40 years, Moshe Rabbeinu as the greatest prophet and the greatest teacher in the history of the Jewish people, has mastered Torah in the greatest way that any human being can master Torah. So Moshe, surely at this moment, could have employed his own wisdom to tackle the question. Most details, or many details in Torah law, are deduced in a very rational system based on the formulas of Torah. We call them the Shlesh Esrei Midas, Shatayun Adreshes Ben. There are formulas how to take the existing laws and texts of the Torah and apply it to different situations. So for example, the Torah never discusses what should be the halacha when it comes to a renter in terms of responsibility. It does discuss an unpaid custodian, a paid custodian, and a borrower. What about a renter? I rent your car and some, there's a hurricane and the car gets damaged. Who's responsible? I didn't do it. It was a hurricane. 
This is a very interesting question. The Torah discusses an unpaid custodian who would be exempt. A paid custodian who would still be exempt if the damage was completely above his, out of his control. And a borrower who would not be exempt. What about a renter? It's a very interesting question. So you have to take the pre-existing texts and laws and apply it to a new case. It happens to be, in this case, there's an argument between a Behuda and a Meir. One compares a renter to a uh, to a um, an unpaid custodian, and one compares a renter to a paid custodian. Halachically, we compare a renter to a paid custodian, meaning it would be like I give you something to hold for me, and I pay you, and you are responsible for anything that happens to it, negligence, or if it's stolen, or if it's lost. You're not responsible for a mishap that you could not control. A hurricane happens, a coronavirus happens, it's not your fault. You're not responsible for the pandemic. Unless you're a borrower, then you just got to give it back. Okay. But my point is that you cannot have a book that contains every single situation that will ever arise in the history of humanity. Simply impossible. You need the formulas, the principles through which you can deduce Torah law and apply it to every situation. That's what I would assume Moshe Rabbeinu would do here. Hashem told them that the laws of inheritance go from father to son. The sons are responsible to support mommy and to support the sisters. <laughs> the Torah wanted and felt, I guess in, 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 in an ideal situation, that the woman should be completely emancipated from any financial stress whatsoever. Huh? You like that woman? <laughs> they should not have to worry ever about paying any bills. When I got married, that's what my sister told me. <laughs> my sister told me, I know you, she told me, I know you don't like technicalities, and I know you don't like paying bills, and I know it's not your forte, your, uh, your brain works in different ways, but make sure that your wife doesn't have to deal with any bills. You take care of all the bills. But I know many marriages are different, and some of them are very fine and functional, even with different arrangements. Everybody got to figure out these things on their own, and this is in certain, in no way, a, a verdict for what makes a good marriage. It does not make it, and there's probably a lot of other things that come first. About. But the principle is that originally God said women have too deep of a responsibility to guarantee the foundations of life and the future of the Jewish people and the future of the world, that their main responsibility is to tune in to the inner world, the inner world of emotion, the inner world of values, the inner world of principles, create the ambience, the energy, the values, the identity and the priorities that allow life to function in the best way, not only for herself, and for her husband, and for her children, and for her family, her environment, and her community. And in that process, all the financial responsibilities of taking care of her, she doesn't have to worry about. Just like in the Ksuva, the husband is completely responsible to support his wife on every single level. She is not obligated to support, he is obligated to support his wife. Of course, if she wants, she can go work and bring in that money to the husband, or she can also make a deal. She could tell the husband, I don't need your support, I'm going to make my own money. Okay, but that's all the details in this issue. So therefore, the laws of inheritance dictated that Slavchot has no sons, so that's it. So the asses don't go anywhere. So where do they go? They get split up among his brothers as though he was non-existent because there was no law about daughters. So they come to Majdis and this doesn't make sense. I understand if our father had sons, 
So they would take the property, they would take the money, and they would support us until we get married, because they were not married yet. They were single. They would support mommy, and they would support us. But now there's nobody. So now what happens? Just because our father was not blessed with sons, so therefore he dies, so it's over, that's it. So even if they're not going to starve, because Moshe Rabbeinu, the Jewish community, would make sure that the daughters of Tzlavcha have everything they need, but it just doesn't make sense that their father should be completely deleted because there's no genealogy of male genealogy. What would you do if you were Moshe Rabbeinu? This is a very interesting question, right? You can use your mind, you can apply different halachas, different situations. It's not what Moshe does. He does not use his own wisdom or any pre-existing formulas to tackle the question. What does he do? He doesn't even make an attempt. He immediately passes it along to Hashem. What is more, the correct decision for this question, apparently, requires no more than simple logic. What would you say? What else should be done with a piece of land belonging to Tzlavchad, who died? Should it, be transferred to, should it be transferred to someone who's not related to him? Does that make sense? Would it make sense for his brothers to receive it? Would that make sense? As we mentioned, according to Torah law, orphaned daughters need to be supported by their own brothers until they get married, and then their husbands support them. Until they get married, their brothers have to support them, and they live in their father's estate that's now inherited by their brothers. So according to principle Torah law, the father dies, the sons inherit their estate, there are daughters, they're not married yet, so mommy and the daughters live in the father's home, and the father's estate, and they have to support them. They have to give them food, they have to give them shelter, they have to give them clothing and so forth. In our case, there were no brothers, there were no sons. All the women were single. They get married only later in the Torah. Where are they supposed to live? Well, we're now going to turn them into homeless beings because their father died? Who would support them? If they don't inherit any part of the land of their father's possessions, they're going to remain homeless. They're going to remain destitute. That is senseless, ridiculous, and runs it's contrary to the whole constitution and Weltanschauung of Torah. So what does basic moral Torah logic dictate? It dictates that the daughters should inherit their father's piece of land, and therefore they have a place to live, they have some assets that they own, they inherit whatever he, whatever he was supposed to have, they have. So they're not homeless, they're not destitute. We still got to figure out how they're going to earn a living. Okay, at this point there was still mana coming down from heaven, you didn't have to earn a living. At the moment. But when they go into Eretz Yisrael, they should be able to have some land. There's no brothers here. Again, if there were brothers, what would the halacha be? They would have to live in the land. So just because there's no brothers, we throw them out of the land and we just give it to a stranger or we give it to an uncle. Now logic is the way we deduce the intricacies of Torah law. We use the perspective, what's called the hashkafas atayra. We use the formulas God gave and the pre-existing laws to deduce new ones. Why then did Moshe feel necessary to immediately bring this issue directly to God, not even begin to seek an answer, when there seems to be a very obvious ruling, an obvious answer, and indeed God says, of course they're right. And I'm going to share with you a very daring insight 
by one of the great Spanish commentators of Torah known as Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya lived in the 13th century, in the 1200s in Spain. He is considered to be one of the most distinguished biblical commentators of Spain. He was a pupil of the Rajbah, Rabbeinu Shlomo ben Aderes, who was a student of the famous Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, Nachman Elis. Rabbeinu Bechaya is one of the first to make use of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, as a means of interpreting the Torah. He also served as a teacher and as a Magid, as a preacher in his native city, of Saragossa, Spain. He passed away in 1340. He's known as Rabbeinu Bechaya, some call him Rabbeinu Bachya. So he's a Spanish Jew, passes away in 1340, student of the Rajba, who's a student of the Ramban. These are the great luminaries of Spanish Jewry. And there's the famous set of volumes, Rabbeinu Bechaya Alatay, Rabbeinu Bachya Alatay, the Somcho Moshem today already print his commentary inside or in the back of the Chumash. He offers a very fascinating insight. And to appreciate the answer Rabbeinu Bechaya gives, we have to examine this question. And the question is, is there such a thing as objectivity? (laughs) What do you think? Should we make a poll on the Zoom? Is there such a thing as being objective? Are human beings capable of objectivity? Is objectivity real? Or is it just another idealistic principle like justice and truth? Very nice in principle, but imperfectly operated in human hands. I want to ask you a real question. Do you think it's possible for you, for me, for any human being to be totally objective? Or it's simply not possible. Our past experiences, our nature our nurture, our encounters, our influences, taint and affect everything that comes afterwards. In other words, is it really possible to disconnect yourself totally from any prejudices and from any opinions and perspectives that might influence your choices or responses to any particular situation? Can you really deliver a completely impartial judgment. That's the question. Now, let me explain to you what I mean. I don't mean, can somebody not be bribed? There are people who know how to be honest, and they want to give an impartial judgment. I'm not asking that. I'm asking if it's even possible. Is it really possible for me to truly, truly not claim that I have no bias? I am completely detached, and completely objective, and I can give an objective decision on this that's not influenced by any bias, by any agenda, conscious or unconscious. Well, in the days of yore, people still thought that they can be objective. (laughs) In modern and postmodern philosophy, it is not only uh, not seen as an attainable dream, but it's rather seen as an essential paradox. Because based on nature or nurture, or both, everybody has the paradigms by which they operate in life. 
Can I ever set myself beyond them? Can I really remove them? How could I? I may have grown up in the most beautiful home. may have grown up in the most dysfunctional home. may have grown up in a home that was both beautiful and dysfunctional. I have a way that my mind operates. I have my DNA. I have my genetic makeup. There's my community. There's the schooling. There's the issues I experienced. Even if I'm the nice, honest, fine, moral, sensitive person. But to say that I'm not biased... How can I not be biased? I have a way of experiencing the world. I have a way of looking at the world. It may be a great, may be optimistic, may be pessimistic, may be full of confidence, may be full of fears and insecurities, may be a combination of both. But every person is filled with certain preconceived notions that I may not even be aware of. But these are the narratives and the stories that govern me in a very deep way. As a result of that, it seems obvious that we all define reality based on our senses, our interpretations, and therefore I'm always subjective. Today they call it cognitive bias. Can a person not be cognitive bias? Can a person not have cognitive bias if you're a human being? Thousands of years ago, the Torah understood this truth about humanity. Not in order to belittle humanity, but actually to help us confront this. Because when there is a challenge, you never gain anything by denying it. On the contrary, by confronting it, you could deal with it. When you don't confront it, it controls you. When you know about it, you can control it. And I'm going to share with you a fascinating law in Gemara. I find it fascinating. And you'll study this for a moment, and you'll see how the sages understood reality. What is today so known as cognitive bias, it's an incredible law. The sages tell us, this is in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 18. Sanhedrin, <speaking in Hebrew> Let me explain. In the Jewish Hebrew calendar, every few years, they made a leap year. We still do. Every two, three years, we add an additional month to the calendar. It's always the last month of the year. Other, the last month, the 12th month in the Hebrew calendar, can sometimes be a double other, which means we add a month. But this was no simple matter. You can't just add a month randomly to the Jewish calendar. This is a very serious matter. You can't just postpone Passover another month. It doesn't work that way. There are, the calendar is a very real thing. And therefore, you can't just add a month because, you know, why not? There has to be good reason for it. In the days of the temple, in the days of the Beis HaMikdash, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and a panel of experts would decide each year whether to make this year a leap year or not. This was based on many calculations. Number one, astronomical calculations to ensure that Pesach, Passover, will be in the spring because the Torah explicitly states that the holiday of Pesach has to be in the spring. Since our months and holidays follow the lunar calendar and the seasons follow the solar cycle, we have to add a month every few years so that the lunar calendar catches up to the solar cycle. If not, 
Pesach would be like Ramadan. Sometimes it would be in the summer, and sometimes it would be in the winter. So that's the one reason. But there were also practical considerations. For example, if it was a very rainy winter, the roads were muddy, the Jews would not be able to travel to Jerusalem for Passover. So the panel would consider adding a month before Pesach, so that the roads can dry up, and the Jewish people can make their trek to Jerusalem. And there were other factors like this. Are there enough goats for Pesach? Similar factors. Are the bridges and are the bridges not broken because the winter would sometimes destroy the bridges and it can endanger people? Are the roads safe to travel? A lot of factors that they had to consider when deciding whether they should add a month or not. So the Talmud tells us that the king of the Jewish people and the high priest could not sit on the court proceedings deciding whether we want to impregnate the year and add a month or not. Why? So the Talmud says the king has an invested monetary interest because his budget is an annual one. If the year has 13 months, the treasury of the king gains. The king would would pay his salaries by the year. If the year was longer, so the burden was lighter. So we can't trust the king to be objective in the matter. Because he pays his soldiers and all of the people who work for the palace, for the king, for the government, he pays them by the year. If the year is 13 months, that's great. He gets another month. It's much easier for him. So therefore he has an invested personal financial interest, so he can't be on the court. Great. Makes sense. What about the high priest? Why can't the Kayin Gadol sit on the court? So do you know what the Talmud says? Mishum Tzina. Because of coldness. Because of coldness? What does this mean? He might not want the year to have 13 months. You know why? Because if it has 13 months, Yom Kippur is later in the season, so Yom Kippur is going to be colder. And he has to immerse himself on Yom Kippur in a mikveh five times. Plus, he serves in the temple barefoot, and he doesn't want the floor to be cold. So if there's no leap year, Yom Kippur is earlier, so the weather, the climate is much warmer, so the floor is not so cold, and the mikveh water is not so warm. Now this is strange. Are we afraid that the high priest of Israel will distort the objective truth of whether a leap year is necessary, just so that the mikveh on Yom Kippur, where he immerses five times, will have warmer water, and the floor will be a little more cozy? And when, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, do we really think that on such a day, he will be focused on the temple jacuzzi, not being hot enough, and because of that, he will distort the law? Yom Kippur, he's facing God himself. He goes into places that nobody ever goes, and yet we are so suspicious that this man, the one who was chosen to represent the Jewish people on the holiest day of the year, even regular people on Yom Kippur are different. We fast, we don't eat, we don't drink, we don't engage in material activities. Jews sit in shula all day dressed in white. It's a very different ambient. Everybody knows, even though I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm sometimes grouchy on Yom Kippur, but there's a certain sense of spirituality. Certainly the high priest who did the whole service and went into the Holy of Holies where nobody ever goes in a whole year, there was a certain elevated, sublime, transcendent ambiance that must have pervaded him on Yom Kippur. 
is this really going to be what sits on his mind? Ooh, the mikveh is not warm enough. And how many degrees do you think is going to be? Do you think it's going to be the difference between 70 or 90 or 80 degrees and 20 below zero? Yom Kippur is going to be a month later. So the mikveh will be a little colder. And the floor is going to be a little colder when I walk on it barefoot. And because of this, I'm Yom Kippur. This is so important to me that I'm ready to distort the law and make sure they don't add an extra month because I have a personal agenda. I want a hot jacuzzi on Yom Kippur and I want to walk on a cozy, warm, heated floor. <laughs> I don't know why they couldn't put in heaters on the floor, but that's an interesting question, huh? You think they could have put in heaters on the floor in the base of Mikdash or they didn't have it 2,000 years ago? Is this strange or not? What do you think about this? But here, I am fascinated by this because 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, Judaism recognized how deep human bias runs. I may be a high priest. I may be a holy Jew. Yom Kippur may be the holiest day of the year. I may be dealing with a national issue adding a month to the year for the entire Jewish world with all of the great consequences. Yet deep down, what determined my decision? The desire for a hot mikveh. And this may not be conscious. It may be subconscious. We're not suspecting the high priest to sit down, listen to the arguments, and say, you know what? I don't give a hoot about the truth. I don't care what God wants. I don't care what the Jewish people need. I don't care about the fact that we should really add a month. All I care is about my mikveh being another few degrees hot. (laughs) Come on. Such immaturity, such absurdity, it may not be conscious. It may be subconscious. The Talmud understands that cognitive bias doesn't mean I'm trying to be biased. It just means there are subconscious motivations that make the decisions for me. Even before I become aware of why I made the decision. My conscious brain tells me you made the decision because of truth. My unconscious brain knows no. It told my conscious brain and gave it a rational reason to be able to eclipse the underlying subconscious motivation, which may be something as simple as, I like the water to be warm. I don't want a cold swimming pool. I want a warm swimming pool. I don't want to walk around all day on a cold floor barefoot. I would like the floor to be a little cozy. Am I sitting there and processing it consciously and saying, yes, my hot mikvah is more important than everything else and every other national interest? Of course not. I'm the high priest. It's a pastor. But that's not how human bias works. Not because we're evil, but because we're human. It's hard to jump into a cold mikvah. <laughs> Maybe only for three seconds. Not a big deal. You're not going to die. But yeah, you know what? I, when the shower, when the when the hot water stops working, it's very everybody complains. We can't take a shower. We can't take a shower. What's the big deal? You go in for a few seconds, but that's the human nature. My body is sensitive. I want warm water. I don't want to walk around on a cold floor. And you know what? Unconsciously, that's the factor that's making the decision, and that's why the high priest will come up with other logical, brilliant calculations to say you don't need a leap year. 
He's giving a very logical and idealistic and maybe spiritual explanation, but unconsciously the Talmud says, don't put him in this committee because he has a personal bias, even if he is unaware of it. What is this all about? It means that in the worldview of Judaism thousands of years ago, we understood that for a person to be great, you first have to know how small you can be. Only when I realize how pathetic, how childish, how immature, how blind, how foolish, how stupid I can be, only when I know how deeply biased can exist in my heart, consciously or unconsciously, only then can I actually deal with it, confront it, and hope to rise above it. We ought never to deny or repress this truth. You have to acknowledge this, because that's the first step in not getting entangled by it. When I come to you and I say, oh, I got no blind spots. Me? I'm not biased. No, no, I am an objective person. And I may even mean it. I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm trying to do that. Then I'm actually dangerous <laughs> because I'm so in the dark that I don't even know I'm in the dark. There's no problem when I'm in the dark as long as I know that I'm in the dark and I have to be careful. But when I turn the darkness into light, oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's a story about Hasidim who was sitting and having a fabreng and they were having an intimate spiritual gathering. And they needed wine. There was no wine. So the, the, the host tells one, of the, tells one of his friends, go down to the cellar. And in the cellar, there's a wine cellar. There's a room with a wine cellar. And bring a bottle of wine. So the man goes down. And he screams. And he says, it's pitch dark. It's pitch dark. How am I supposed to see where the wine is? So the host says, somebody else says, don't worry. Stay there for a few minutes and you'll become accustomed to the darkness. Your eye will become accustomed to the darkness and then you'll be able to figure out where the wine is. So they were in the middle of a spirited, introspective fabrenge. So this chassid screams from the cellar. He says, that's exactly what I'm afraid of, to remain here for a few minutes and become accustomed to the darkness. And the darkness is not going to seem so dark anymore. It's going to substitute my need for brightness. In other words, he was applying this to life. When I'm in the dark, I'm in the dark. But if I know that I'm in the dark, I can seek help. I can become aware of the traps. I can become aware of the issues. When the darkness becomes a substitute for light, oy vavoy. The Baal Shem Tev once said, says in Chumash, Vanoichi haster aster is pone Hashem says, I'm going to conceal, conceal my face on that day. Why twice haster aster? The Baal Shem Tev says, when the hester is behester, when the concealment is concealed, then there is a real concealment. When you know there's a concealment, then the concealment is not so powerful. When I know I'm in the dark, when I know that this is concealing truth, I'm good. You know why? Because I could confront it. When I'm having an emotion, or when I'm having a sensation, or when I'm having an instinct, or when I get into a mood, and I know that this is not the full picture of reality, it's basically a result of my own trauma, my own insecurities, and my own narratives, my own stories, okay, I can put it in its place. 
I can give it context. I can quarantine it, pun intended. I can quarantine it. And I could say, okay, I got it. You're frightened. You're having delusions. You're having experiences, maybe from your child, that this is your MO. Somebody says something to you, your husband says something, your wife says something, your child says something, you freak out internally. Okay, I got it. Let me give you a glut. Let me give you a caress. Come, I'll give you a little hug. But I don't have to respond from that place because I know its limitations. I, I know that it's limited and I know how biased it is and I know how traumatized it is. And therefore, if you know that darkness is dark, if you know that here there is concealment, the truth is not present, you can pay, give it its dues and not allow it to define you. But if the darkness becomes light, if suddenly I lose my sense, I don't realize that this is a hester. The hester becomes a hester. The hester is behester. This is where Gullus begins. This is where dysfunction begins. This is where craziness begins. This is where immorality begins. When suddenly my immorality is moral and my bias is objective and my blind spots are seen by me as vision. Helen Keller once said, the only thing, Helen Keller, who was deaf and blind and became a source of inspiration to humanity, by what she achieved in her life, despite these incredible setbacks and limitations. And she once said, Helen Keller once said, the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is not having vision. What happens when my blind spot becomes my vision? I have vision, look. But it's all guided by a blind spot. Oy va voy. If a person knows that he or she lacks something, I can deal with it. I can actually paradoxically control it because I know of the problem. When I deny it, when I say I'm not biased, now my bias can creep into every single decision because I don't have the courage and the clarity to be able to identify. So therefore, Judaism always understood a human being's path to greatness always travels through our smallness. Did you hear what I said, women? The human being's path to greatness must travel through our smallness. Only when I realize how petty I am and I could be, only when I realize how childish I can be, how immature, how pathetic, how stupid, how insecure, how fearful, can I actually become truly great. I can actually transcend all of these qualifications, all of these experiences. You know why? Because I'm aware of it. I can identify it. I can see it. And then I can choose to react from a different place. That is a very powerful idea in life. We sometimes run away from our smallness. I'm, I'm not pathetic. I'm not a little baby. I'm not a crybaby. And you know, you're told, grow up, grow up, grow up. When I grow up without being a baby, I can't grow up. (laughs) Right? Can you grow up without being a baby? You can't. You know why? Because we are babies. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. The baby remains forever. And babies are cute. They're not bad. Babies are cute. 
when I had the luxury to be a baby, I could now grow up. If I was never allowed to be a baby, then I can't really grow up because everything about me is still underdeveloped. So when I can identify and say, yeah, you know, I'm very simple and this really, really hurt. It's having that uh, honesty about my vulnerability. We, I could be very, very small and very, very petty. And then you know what happens? Then the pettiness actually does not become part of my life because I can see it, I can identify it, and I can quarantine it. Sometimes I can even extricate myself from it. Sometimes, sometimes not. There's two stages, eskafia, eskafia. Do I quarantine it or do I actually transform it? Okay, those are stages in spiritual development and growth. But the common denominator is identify it. So the Talmud says, the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, the high priest cannot be on the panel that judges if there is going to be a leap year. You know why? Because people have pettiness in them. And one of the things that we like is hot jacuzzis. Warm water, even on Yom Kippur. Doesn't mean all of me needs it, but it means a part of me may distort my conscious brain. And the decision has been made even before I'm aware of it. Today we know it's incredible. In neuroscience we know today, and they have done experiments with this to prove that we make decisions about certain choices and questions in our life before we become aware of those decisions. In other words, the decisions are made on a subconscious level based on subconscious motivations which I don't have any control over because I don't even know about I think I'm making a decision because I'm brilliant and I'm idealistic and I'm intricate and I'm logical. All these decisions are completely influenced by my subconscious needs, yearnings, fears, pinings, values, traumas, skeletons, demons, ghosts, or spiritual uh, oneness. And then my subconscious brain influences my conscious brain to find the logic that supports it. What's the first step to be able to confront this? Awareness. The moment I become aware of this, everything changes. Not because I'm not biased anymore, but because I'm aware of my bias. There's a great anecdote I want to share with you. There was a man who was in court and he was facing a staggering loss if the judge would rule against him. So he was in great distress and agony. And during the litigation, he conferred with his counsel. And he shared with his counsel, he said, if I lose this case, I am lost. I am completely lost. So the lawyer instinctively replies, it's in the judge's hands. So the man says, you know, maybe I can send the judge a small gift, maybe a case of whiskey to help him make up his mind. The lawyer says, oh, no, 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 not with this judge, not with this judge. I've been working with him for many years. He is a very upstanding man, and he would be very insulted by the implication 
that he could be bought off with a bribe. In fact, it can easily cost us the case. If you tried any shenanigans, any shtick, this can cost us the case. We can lose just because of that. The defendant did not respond. He was quiet. A few days later, the judge renders the decision in favor of the defendant. Mazel Baruch Hashem, Simen Taiva, Mazel Taiva, Mazel On the way out of the courthouse, the defendant is delighted, he's relieved, he's been exonerated. He thanks his lawyer with a full heart. We won, he says. Thanks so much for your advice on the whiskey. It was just as you said. The lawyer says, Oh, come on. Tell me the truth. I am certain we would have lost the case if you tried bribing that judge with the whiskey, the lawyer says. The man says, No, I did it, and it worked. The lawyer couldn't believe it. He stops short, and he says, What? You sent this judge a case of whiskey? To help him decide in your favor? Yes, he said. I sent him a case of whiskey and I added a check for $20,000. And that's the reason we won. The lawyer says, sorry, this can't be. I know this man for decades. This judge has never, ever taken a bribe. If somebody bribes him, that person loses the case immediately. How in the world did you pull it off? Oh, he said, it's very simple. I sent the judge a case of his expensive whiskey with a huge check, but instead of using my own name and address, I put in the business card of my opponent, of the plaintiff. That's what I did. So we all know that if I get a case of whiskey... <laughs> Well, I'm not into whiskey, but if some people, if they get a case of whiskey at $25,000, it constitutes bribery. But you know what? There are other forms of bribery. There's something called verbal bribery. There's something called a gesture towards the judge. There's a, a, a story, Talmud Ksuvis, Tractate Ksuvis, page 105, where the Talmud views the power of human bias. And I'll give you an example. There was a sage, Shmuel, one of the greatest Talmudic sages. He was crossing a bridge. And a fellow man stretched out his hand to help him come across the bridge. It's a narrow bridge, it's wobbly. He gives him his hand to help him. Shmuel asks him, what brings you here? And he says, I have a pending court case by you. Shmuel was the Jewish chief judge in the Babylonian city of Nehardah. I have a court case, I came here. You know what Shmuel said? Incredible words, and I'm going to tell you the original words he said. Pasilna lach ledina. I am disqualified to serve as a judge for you. You know why? Because you helped me cross the bridge. You did me a favor. I'm crossing the bridge. You give me your hand so I don't fall into the water. He says, when I'm sitting at court in court, a part of me, maybe subconsciously, is looking to help you out versus the other person. 
and I become aware of it, and the moment I'm aware of this, I cannot sit on this court case. The Talmudic Suvis 105 gives another episode. There was a great Talmudic sage, Amemar. He was sitting during a trial, and a feather landed on his head. A man came and took it off. He removed the feather. You know what Amemar said? What brings you here? And the man answers, I have a pending court case by you. Amemar said, I am disqualified to sit as a judge in your court case because you removed the feather. You have just disqualified me. Come on, you took off a feather for my jacket, for my shirt. (laughs) The answer is, yeah. You know what? I like you. You showed me honor. You showed me respect. I like you. Nothing wrong with me liking you. But tomorrow... When somebody is accusing you of a crime that you have done or you have not done, my subconscious brain already made decisions. Wow, because you took the feather off my shirt. (laughs) You took the feather off my shirt. The Talmud says there was a man named Marukva. He was walking. There was saliva on the floor in front of him. A person comes along and he covers the saliva. He may have taken some earth and he covers it. Marukva says, what brings you here? He says, oh, I have a pending court case by you. And Marukva says, sorry, I'm disqualified. You know why? I was walking and you cover the saliva. I like you. I'm biased. Listen to this one. The sheer cropper of Rabbi Yishmael, there was a Jew, one of the greatest sages, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yishmael. He had a sharecropper, the man who was in charge on his fields and orchards, and he used to bring him a basket of fruits every Friday from the harvest of Rabbi Shmuel's own orchard, which he took care of, he managed. This was part of the business arrangement they made. Every Friday he would bring Rabbi Shmuel fruits of his own garden that the manager harvested. One week, he brought the fruits on Thursday. Rabbi Shmuel says, why did you come early? And you know what he says? I have a pending court case by you with another person. So I figured on my way, I'll bring my master the basket of fruits. What do I have to come twice? Rabbi Shmuel didn't accept the basket, and he said, I cannot judge this person. Now I want you to think about the story, because the worker of Rabbi Shmuel was not trying to bribe him. He was obligated, according to their business arrangement, to bring him the fruits at the end of every week. So instead of bringing it on Friday, he brought it on Thursday, the day that the court was in session. So he saved himself a trip to go back and come back Friday a second time to bring the fruits. What's the big deal? You're going to the city anyway on Thursday, so you kill two birds with one stone. Rabbi Shmuel did not accept his own basket of fruits. He did not allow himself to sit in this case. Why? Because there is a bias. And the story continues. Rabbi Shmuel disqualified himself from being a judge. He found other scholars to sit in his stead in the midst of the trial, Rabbi Shmuel found himself mentally engaged in arguments to help this person win the case. He didn't say a word, but in his mind, he found that his mind was leaning and looking for rationale to help him win the case. And then Rabbi Shmuel said to himself, look at the power of bribery. I did not take the basket of fruits. Even if I would have taken the fruits, it would have been allowed because they belonged to me. Still, I found myself favoring this man. Imagine what would have happened if I actually took the bribe. I didn't only see him bring me the fruits, but I actually took it. The moral sensitivity and integrity of the Talmudic sages displayed here 
can explain to us the spiritual weight that these people carry in Jewish history. When we encounter people who are so keenly aware of the pitfalls of human nature, the depth of self-deception, the penetration of bias and personal agendas into a seemingly detached and objective issue, these are people you can trust. The greatest obstacle to truth and trust is not that we humans have agendas, It's that we have agendas and we deny those agendas. This is why we trust their interpretation of Torah. Because the greatest quality, the most important quality of the Talmudic sages throughout all of the generations is one. And that is absolute integrity, even if the cost is great. They were committed to the truth and only the truth. And being committed to the truth means... Also being committed to become aware of the slightest bias, agenda, and subconscious motivations that may take you away from the truth. And as a result of that, these are people you can really, really trust. Now, let's go back to the daughters of Tzlovchot, and it will all become clear. Remember how they presented their case to Moshe Rabbeinu? What did they say? They said, our father died in the desert. He was not among the members of Kairach's party who protested against God. He died because of his own sin. And he didn't leave any sons. This detail is the key to the story. Kairach staged a ferocious mutiny against Moshe and Aaron. He saw Moshe as his arch enemy and attempted to rally up the nation against Moshe. Kairach claimed that Moshe was a power-hungry demagogue, heaven forbid, who craved nothing but absolute control, power, and authority. The moment Moshe heard the daughters of Slavchat say that their father was not part of Kairach's mutiny, Moshe felt that his psyche has just consciously or unconsciously, become biased towards them and towards their father. This was a verbal bribe, as subtle as it may be, even if they did not intend it to be so. Tzlovchod already was somebody that Moshe could like. And therefore he might not be objective in this decision. Now I want you to reflect on this because this is a moment of absolute human greatness that we must appreciate and learn from. The episode of Kairach challenging Moshe's authority and Aaron's right to the priesthood took place when? It took place 39 years before this episode with the daughters of Slavchat. Lots of water has flowed under the bridge since that day. Kairach's end was ugly. He was swallowed up by the earth. Moshe's authority has been restored four decades earlier. Over the past four decades since the story of Kairach, Nobody any longer suspected Moshe of being a dictator, of surrendering to nepotism. Nobody challenged his role as a leader, even if there were challenges and problems. Kairach's story has long abated. It was something of the past that was obsolete. Now, add to this one more detail. Moshe didn't have anything personal against Kairach. Moshe never wanted to become a leader. God 
twisted his arm, so to speak, to take this position. Moshe told Hashem, no, 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 I'm not a man of words. Nobody's going to believe me. I don't know what to say. Send somebody else. Moshe never wanted this. He would have been very happy to remain a silent shepherd, shepherding the flock of his father-in-law. In fact, Moshe would have been happy to obey Kairach and retire from his post. Moshe was not defending his personal honor. He was defending the truth. Consider further that Moshe was now almost 120 years old. This is not an 18-year-old or a 45-year-old man. He has been the greatest prophet and scholar who ever lived, the greatest human being who walked our planet. A person for the last 40 years communicated directly with God and brought Torah, the blueprint of the divine, to humanity and to the Jewish people. He made us into a nation and he gave the world the divine manual for changing our world and making it the place it's supposed to be. Yet this man felt that the moment that a few young women mentioned the fact that their father was on the right team, that their father did not join a mutiny 39 years earlier, he, Moshe Rabbeinu, is disqualified of judging their case. He immediately said, I cannot be objective in this case. I have to bring this to God. That's why. He doesn't say, I'm going to think about it. It sounds good. Let's reflect. Then I'll go to God. We don't have to bother Hashem. No. Right away he hears these words and he says, sorry, I cannot be part of this decision. Had they not mentioned the Kairach Saga, Moshe might have contemplated the question and offered his view on the law. The moment they mentioned that 39 years ago, their father was on the right team supporting Moshe, Moshe says, I cannot be the judge. This is the level of self-awareness, of honesty that Judaism asks of us. Don't be perfect, but be accountable. Don't be perfect, but try to be honest. Don't be perfect, but allow yourself to see your vulnerabilities. Don't be flawless, but be brutally honest with yourself. Realize how subjective and biased you and I may be on any given issue, perhaps without realizing it, which only makes it far more impactful, because I can't even notice it to put any brakes on it. Always retain your humility. Always allow yourself to be challenged. Listen to another perspective and be open to the truth that you may be wrong. And most importantly, I have to be able to ask myself, am I really tainting this entire experience based on very deep-seated stuff inside of me that sit in my body? What happens if my body, which holds the score, is containing a lot of trauma inside? And as a result of that, every encounter with you, every experience I have with you, is being profoundly impacted by those inner deep experiences and emotions that I am not even aware of, but that they define all of my attitudes and perspectives. And the worst thing for me to do is repress it and deny it because I've now become an internal victim. I may not be able to right away extricate it, but if I can be aware of it, I can actually observe it. I can tune into it. That's the first step of transcending it. If Moshe Rabbeinu, at the peak of his life, felt that no matter his standing, God told Aaron and Miriam years earlier 
He is loyal in my home. Nobody is like Moshe. I speak to him face to face. person who speaks face to face with God. What is God? God is truth. In other words, you speak face to face with truth. There's no person like this. Still, a small compliment from five sisters. Now, they were great women. So five women come to Moshe and give him a compliment. You know, our Tati liked you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Our Tati liked you. And Moshe says, that's it. I cannot be part of this decision. Wow, it's incredible. <laughs> Not because he was blaming himself, but he had to acknowledge that level of bias. A compliment of five sisters talking about you and your enemy can alter his objectivity and distort his sense of truth. If the man whom God entrusted with his wisdom, the man about who Hashem declares he is trusted in my entire home, the man about the Torah says, like come Novi be told, there was never a prophet among the Jewish people who knew God face to face. Still felt he can be biased, not because somebody gave him one hundred billion dollars, but because five because five sisters said, by the way, Tati was on the right team. If Moshe could feel so, certainly I and you can ask ourselves, maybe there's another perspective. Maybe my wife has a point. Maybe my mother-in-law is right. Okay, I won't push it. (laughs) Maybe my husband has a point. Maybe my wife has a point. Maybe I need an outside opinion. Maybe I mean well, but I am just trapped in a certain way of thinking. And I think it's true. And I'm trying to do the right thing. And I'm idealistic. But there are formations in my brain that I'm not in control of. And that's where I'm operating from. A couple comes to me, they're having an issue with their marriage. Each one has a complaint. And each one has a thousand proofs that they are right and their spouse is wrong. In each of their minds, the other person is horrible. At such moments, you always have to remember the words of the Gemara. Adam Karavetz al A person is considered related to himself. <laughs> what does that mean? Of course, it means... Just as I'm not allowed to use a relative as a witness, I can't use you as a witness about yourself. You know why? Because you're related to yourself. Not because you're a bad person, but because I have to always identify where you're coming from and what are the inner forces that are creating your decisions. So the question is, where do we go from here? If people are inherently subjective, we might always have a lurking agenda. What do we do? What am I supposed to do? Okay, so I'm trapped. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. What do we do? So that's why I say the first step is awareness. The moment you become aware of these things and you can observe them, you are already in a much more powerful and a much more authentic place. But there is, of course, something else. And this is where relationships come in. It says in Perkeyavis, the first chapter, Yeshua Prashtia says, Assume for yourself a master 
Acquire for yourself a friend and judge every person to the side of merit. Acquire for yourself a master. A person needs a confidant. A person needs a mentor. A person needs an instructor. Every single one of us needs a human being or human beings in whom we could confine, in, in whom we can dis- with whom we can discuss important issues that pertain to the course of our lives. The value of the confidant is not that he's necessarily smarter than I am. He may not be smarter than I am. Nobody may be smarter than you or me, at least in our minds. The value is that he's not me. <laughs> the value is that this is an outside voice before whom I can run by my issues, concerns, questions. I could share what's going on in my lives. Of course you want somebody who's wise and, perspect- and perceptive and confidential. And you need to make sure that's the right person. And here I should say, just like there are great doctors, there are fine doctors and there are mediocre doctors, the same is true with every other field. Whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, whether it's a psychologist, whether it's a counselor, whether it's a consultant, whether it's a confidant, whether it's a rabbi, whether it's a rebetzin, whether it's a mashpia, whether it's an educator, some of them are extraordinary, they're great. Some of them are fine, and some of them are actually not so good at what they do. <laughs> they may mean well, they may have good intentions, but they just may not have the experience, or the depth, or the perceptiveness, or the wisdom, or the appreciation of all of the angles and the ramifications and the consequences, or they may, may simply not be aware of a lot of things, or even the best of them. All of us make errors, we don't always get it right. And that's why it's very important <laughs> To know that sometimes there's a person that's not right for you. If it's not working, if it's not helping, if it's not successful, it's time to move on. It's like a date. <laughs> not everybody you date forever. Sometimes it works, sometimes you have to move on. You don't have to be afraid of that. But it is so important in life to be able to have a person, to be able to have people who help us along our journey. People in whose presence we can be vulnerable, we can be honest, we can share our secrets, we can share what's going on. And they can help us not become perfect people, but to become honest people, to become people who are really accountable, to become people who become comfortable with the fact that we're so small, because it's only then that we can truly become so great. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful and wonderful week. I'm going to take a few questions now. Before I take the questions, I'm just going to announce tonight, 8.30 p.m., We have a class right here on theyeshiva.net. Everybody is invited. We're going to be exploring a Rashi in Parshas Pinchas. And the topic is, does Hashem really need me? Does God care if I daven, if I pray? That's Tuesday night, 8.30, tonight. Thursday morning, 7.30, we'll be having our class on Hashkafa, Machshava, Chassidus. We're discussing now, exploring now the cosmic battles and the internal battles between depression, self-confidence, self-esteem, good and evil. That's going to be Thursday, 7.30, also on the yeshiva.net, and it's also on Zoom. Okay, let's go to questions. So I'm going first to the Zoom. Okay, first question. Is there ever a time when bias is warranted? Number one, what if one doesn't have a confidant? Especially in parenting, we have our own experiences and we want to teach our kids. 
excellent question. And the answer is, is there ever a time when bias is warranted? Well, we are biased. We, 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 uh, I have a, a friend, his name is Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson, and he, wrote, he lives in England, and he wrote a book called Positivity Bias. Positivity Bias. And it's a book about the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his teachings and a lot of uh, stories about his life. And the theme of the book is that the Rebbe had a positivity bias, which means he taught people to be able to have a bias towards positivity. In other words, to be able to say, I want to see the positivity in this person and in this situation and in this experience and in this story and in myself. Like to really have that bias. In other words, we have biases. He tells a story, I heard this story years ago, that there was a journalist who once came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he was a secular journalist, he had a Jewish newspaper. And the Rebbe said, you know, your newspaper should really encourage people and it should make Jews feel proud of their Judaism and, and give them uh, encouragement and inspiration and a positive Jewish perspective. You know, make them warm up their hearts. He tells the Rebbe, I'm sorry. No, no. Our newspaper is independent and objective. We do not have any biases. We're independent. We're not dependent on any organization. Nobody pays for us. We don't have a particular party line. We are completely independent, completely objective, which means if there's good news, we report the good news. If there's bad news, we report the bad news. We are honest. We're not going to cover anything up. We're not here to inspire people. We're here to tell the truth, and there is absolutely no agenda, no bias. And the Rebbe smiled, and he tells this editor who was who repeated it, the Rebbe said, independent maybe, objective? <laughs> that person has not yet been created. Everything you experience is filtered through your nature, through your nurture, through your own life's experiences, you judge it, you give, you experience it from a certain place, and that's how you write about it. Be aware of that. Be aware that our mindset influences every single story we experience and we tell. You could say, you're trying not to be biased, you're not doing it intentionally, that's fine, but to say you're not biased... Of course you're biased. And therefore I say to you, try to realize that part of your mission is to help people grow and to inspire people and to give them encouragement and to bring out goodness in their life. I'm not telling you not to tell honest stories. But your agenda is to bring goodness into people's lives because you have an agenda. Everybody has an agenda. Don't say you don't have an agenda. It may be subconscious, but you have an agenda. So make that agenda, at least partially, a positive agenda. So I think that's my answer to you. We are always biased. Of course I'm biased. I'm a human being. I'm not a robot. I'm not a computer. But I want to work on it. And I want to be able to identify the goodness in me, the godliness in me, the infinity in me. So at least that can be a major part of my decision making. And in order to do that, I have to become aware of all the forces that exist in me without being afraid of anything, including my pettiness. I heard a great story. A fellow shared it with me. <laughs> I love the story. He went with his wife to a wedding. They traveled to Canada. They went to a wedding. They traveled all day 
from New York to Canada. And uh, they come to the, they come to the wedding, and he's starving. He didn't eat all day. They didn't stop. They had to be at the wedding. And he's starving. He comes to the wedding. They're dancing. No food yet. Finally, the dance is over. They sit down, and the waiter serves him the chicken. And he eyes the chicken. He's about to consume the chicken. His wife comes into the men's section. She's standing at the door, and she motions to him, come, 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 come fast. Okay, his wife is calling him, so he gets up, and he goes out, and she says, I found here a gewaldige shatchen, a matchmaker, who I think could be very, very helpful to help one of our children get married, find hopefully their soulmate with God's help. We have to speak to her. He says, fine, it's very important stuff. And they speak to the matchmaker for a while, I guess describe the situation or whatever issue was going on. They finish the conversation. This man tells me, I come back. Oi, vavoi! The waiters cleaned up. The chicken is gone. There's not a morsel of food. It's all over. And right there and then, Wife tells him, we got to go home because the babysitter in New York has to leave early in the morning and there's a bunch of little kids in the house. He can't leave you little kids. If we don't leave the chasana right now, we're not going to be home on time and our kids are going to be left alone. So he got to leave right then. He can't even go to the kitchen and try to find a piece of chicken, which in any way is not so bad time to do. They get into the car and they start their trek home from Canada back to New York, whatever it is, five, six, seven, eight hours, and they're traveling, they have to travel through the night in order to be back home for their little kids who will not have a babysitter at home. And he tells me the story, he says, I am furious. I am so angry at my wife, I just can't speak to her. And she's very calm and nice and kind and jolly, and she's like, how you doing? How was the wedding? What do you think of it? Are you fine? You know, just regular, loving, kind relationship type of conversation, just connecting person to person. And he tells me, I am furious. I want to scream. I want to break the window. I want to run away. I'm like so angry. You know when you're so angry, there's like nothing else? Like that's the only reality? And his wife is unaware of why he would be angry at her, of course. So she's like, uh, are you all right? You know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm all right, I'm all right. And she sees he's simmering with ire. She's like, what happened, what happened? And he's so angry, like, he's not even sure what happened. He's just so angry. And then it dawns on him, the chicken. Because she made him lose the chicken. She called him out to speak to a matchmaker. And what happened? He never got to eat the chicken and he's starving. And he started to smile to himself. And then he shared it with her and he said, you know, I'm very angry at you. Why? What happened? Chicken. I missed my chicken. And he said, and he started to laugh. And it all got released and he was fine. The moment he can identify how petty we humans are. Yeah, a piece of chicken does it. I'm starving. Because of you, I lost my plate of chicken, even though you didn't mean it that way. You just wanted to help your child get married. Got it. But the chicken is more important than everything because I'm hungry. And when I can identify that, 
I can actually say, okay, yeah, I was very angry at you. And you know what? And now let's move on. You see? Now imagine he would tell himself, I'm a Jew who learns Musr, I'm a Bentaira, I'm a Yeshiva graduate, and he's a Jew, he's a Jew, he's a serious Jew, he's an Ovid Hashem, he's a Bentaira, he's went through a lot in life. He's, he's, a, he's a refined person. If he would tell himself, Man, I can't be so upset about a chicken. Come on, it's a passage. What am I, a glutton? A bensayer to murder? An addict about tithe chicken? So now what is he angry at his wife for? Oh, probably some existential reasons. What would have happened? Would have been a mess. They would have been fighting without even knowing it. The moment you can identify the bias, you can emancipate yourself from it. So we're always biased, but when we can identify it, then we can make choices that are much more powerful and we can choose to align with our infinite divine core and make decisions from that place. Get it? I hope I answered your question. If you don't have a confidant, well, it's important to find somebody. It's very important. A person needs somebody that you can speak to. doesn't have to be somebody who's your age or somebody who is as brilliant in everything as you are or somebody who's an expert in everything, but somebody who you trust their judgments and you can share with them. And maybe it could be more than one person. You know, sometimes different things you want to share with somebody else. But this is something very, very valuable in life. It's very important. What about parenting? I think in parenting this becomes critical because you want to parent from a place of decisiveness and clarity. Ambivalence and indecisiveness is what our children don't like and they utilize it. You know, when you're not so uh, decisive about what's the right thing, your children feel your indecisiveness and they manipulate it. And then it's very bad for them and it's very bad for you. So you want to be able to be decisive, but with you and people who are close to you, you want to be able to really ask yourself tough questions and really be introspective and say, you know, why is this triggering me? What is going on in here? What is my bias here? Are my expectations false? What does my child need more than anything else? What does he or she need right now? Am I trying to turn the child into something that's not really what the child needs now? The child needs a parent, but what's the role of that parent? These are very good and very important questions to ask ourselves. And it's, it's a journey of discovery, of introspection, and we do the best we can with the tools that we have. And we have to believe and have trust and faith and, and connect to God and the God inside of us to be able to make decisions from an empowered place, from a place of confidence and, and depth and truth and love and, and deep connection and deep empathy. That's where you want to make your decisions from. And the more I'm aware of my pitfalls, the more I can make decisions from that place. So it seems... I'm, ask, I'm taking the questions now from the yeshiva.net. It seems our ability to be objective is always an issue, whether we're judges or not. So we are aware and honest about it. Is that enough to make us less so? Does it make us really objective? Well, listen, we are always making decisions 
based on who we are and our perceptions of reality. But there is levels of objectivity, meaning I could be object. Can I be completely objective in the world? I can't be completely objective in the world. Just my upbringing affects me. My genes affect me. Granted, but number one, my awareness of these things allow me to see where my blind spots are. Number one. Number two, there is relative objectivity, me perspective. But when I'm a true student of Torah. I can really ask myself, what does the Torah say in this situation? And try to work on myself in the deepest way to come close to the truth of what God wants for me. Will I completely be correct? That's why we have in Torah different opinions. And we say both opinions are the words of the living God. Because truth can have sometimes different perspectives. So there are levels in subjectivity. There's a subjectivity that is part of the human condition. However, I could still be aware of that. And try to look at the Torah's perspective to the best of my knowledge and to the best of my ability. But then there are bribes that really make me subjective. And here I completely become disqualified. Why by children doesn't it work so well? They don't see what parents do for them. Well, children see it when they get older. (laughs) The question of whether or not we can be objective is almost like, do we have free choice or not? It's connected, yeah. Great questions, great questions. I wish you all a beautiful, beautiful week. Hatzloch and everything. My deepest blessings to all of you to be able to have a meaningful, inspiring, successful week, blessed with abundance of health, happiness, prosperity. Chazak, chazak, v'niz chazek. And may we all have the courage to be able to really uh, identify our blind spots so that we can transcend them to some degree and uh, develop much more powerful attitudes in our decision-making when we realize the role of human bias in our decision-making and accuracy and that even the greatest prophet has to understand his vulnerability. It really gives us the perspective that can help us uh, become much more emancipated. Have a beautiful week. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.